The text for the message this morning is Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 to 16. We read this knowledge in the context of the gospel we read in Romans 8 and sang together in hymn 35. Exodus 18, starting, Exodus 17, starting at verse 8, it's on page 59. It's after the Lord provided water and quail and bread and water again. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Beloved church, if you were to hold up your hands in the air, how long could you do it? You'd be surprised how quickly your arms would tire. Now imagine if your life and the life of hundreds of thousands of people depended on you keeping your arm in the air. Well, many years ago in the desert near the close to Mount Sinai, this is the situation Moses found himself in as he stood on a hill overlooking the battle between the Amalekites and the Israelites. Moses was holding the staff of God that had been used to bring the plagues against Egypt and to divide the waters of the Red Sea. He was holding it in his hand. And when he raised his arms that the Israelites would prevail in the battle below him, but when he lowered his arms, the enemy, the Amalekites, would prevail. The staff of God in Moses' hand was like a banner or a flag that a military unit might hold above their heads, except that instead of indicating what country or king they were fighting, what country they were fighting for, the staff served as a banner marking the presence of the Lord God Almighty who was fighting with the Israelites. Moses on the hill made it clear that the Israelites were loyal to the Lord on whom they depended for strength. The troops could be encouraged to see their mediator 
bringing the Lord's blessing upon their battle with arms lifted up to the heavens. This event that took place so many years ago continues to serve as a picture of the work of our mediator, Jesus Christ, who guides us by the power of the Holy Spirit in our Christian lives. On our own, we don't have the strength to resist all the attacks of God's enemies. And our human spiritual leaders cannot restore us to fellowship with God on their own strength. But when we are united to Christ, our mediator, we will remain under the Lord, our banner, who gives us the strength to persevere. And I preach to you this gospel under the theme, Christ our mediator brings the Lord's blessings to his church at war. We'll see that God's people are called to battle and under the banner. Although Balaam refers to the Amalekites in Numbers 24 verse 20 as first among the nations, we don't know very much about them today. Our text suggests that their territory bordered Egypt on the east and included a portion of the desert of Sin extending upward to the south side of the future promised land. The Amalekites were unhappy that Israel was passing through the desert on their way to Mount Sinai. And they attacked Israel in a very underhanded way while the Israelites were faint and weary, we read in Deuteronomy 25, by cutting off their tail, killing those who were lagging behind. Now reading our text from a purely secular viewpoint, the attack of the Amalekites appears to be just one more example of a nation defending its own sovereignty and its own supply chain from the perceived threat of the nation of Israel that was making use of the water supply near Rephidim. You can imagine desert life, how important water is. It's like oil today. They were defending their water supply. However, in the description of the event that we just read in Deuteronomy 25, the Lord includes an important detail that shows us that the Amalekite attack was more than just political. For the Holy Spirit tells us that Amalek did not fear God. And by mentioning specifically that Amalek did not fear God, the Holy Spirit reveals that Amalek knew God. And in fact, as we trace Amalek's lineage backwards, we discover that he was Isaac's great-grandson through the line of Esau. And we can see then that there's a very good possibility that Amalek knew about the special blessing given to Abraham and Isaac concerning the exodus from Egypt and their inheritance in the promised land. And if Amalek had feared God, he would have looked for peace with Israel so that he might be included in the redemption from sin that the Lord was bringing through the nation of Israel just as he had promised. But since Amalek did not fear God, he tried to prevent the people from receiving their inheritance in the promised land. Amalek had set himself up against the God of his own fathers and the people that the Lord had chosen for himself. Amalek had made himself an enemy of God's saving work 
through the nation of Israel. And it was a fitting time in the history of redemption to introduce Joshua, the leader of the future conquest of the promised land, the inheritance. The battle on the field below the hill where Moses stood would serve as a picture that prefigured a battle that would continue on throughout the generations. And although they had been stopped from preventing God's saving work in the desert, the Lord made it clear that the war with Amalek would continue from generation to generation. And so now, looking forward in the Old Testament, we read that the curse against Amalek that the Lord had written in a book and spoken into the ears of Joshua would have consequences for Israel, the people of God, for many future generations. Just before he died, Moses reminded the people not to forget to wipe out the Amalekites when God had given them rest in the land of their inheritance. After the conquest, when Saul was anointed as king by Samuel, the first order, the first command that the Lord gave to King Saul was to destroy the Amalekites, to completely wipe them out. And when King Saul disobeyed God and he kept some plunder for himself and he spared the life of the Amalekite King Agag, it was such a grievous sin in the sight of the Lord that Saul was completely rejected as king. His failure to wipe out the Amalekites was a reason he was rejected as king, his disobedience to the Lord. In contrast, and then mentioned right when David heard that Saul had died, King David revealed his fear of God, his, his faith in the promised Messiah through his battles with the Amalekites when he was posted in Ziklag. Continuing to look forward in the history of, of the people of God and presuming that Haman, the Agagite, was a descendant of King Agag and the Amalekites, the book of Esther tells of one more serious attempt by Amalek to wipe out the people of God from the face of the earth to prevent the birth of our Savior. And many Jews have recognized this connection and they incorporate the reading of Exodus 17, 8 to 16, our, our text today, when they celebrate the Feast of Purim that was instituted after Esther was used by the Lord to save the Jewish people in exile under King Ahasuerus. Well, the Amalekites were clearly cursed by God from generation to generation, not only for attacking the vulnerable Israelites in their frailty, and not only because Amalek rejected the invitation to share in God's blessing as a descendant of Abraham, but ultimately because they threatened to deprive the world of the coming promised Messiah who would be born according to the promise of the, uh, that was given to Adam and Eve and Seth and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The battle at the foot of the hill that Moses was standing on was a manifestation of the greater struggle between the seed of the serpent 
and the seed of the woman. And this battle between Satan and his church was not brought to an end when the Israelites overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Throughout the generations, the Amalekites were antichrists under the curse of the Lord who declared that he would blot out their name, their memory from under heaven. They are an early manifestation of the Babylon, the great, described in Revelation, who were serving as instruments of the serpent who sought to kill the woman who would give birth to the Son of God. We read about that in Revelation 12 and 18. Their destruction continues to serve as a warning for everyone who rebels against the Lord, refuses to submit before the Son of God, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. People may fight against God and His church for a time, but our text announces they are fighting a battle that they have already lost. And our text reminds us of the distinction that is sometimes made between the believers who are at rest in heaven, we'll sing about them in hymn 52, the church triumphant or the church at rest, and believers who still live on the earth and are in this constant struggle, the church militant or the church at war. And this distinction is helpful because it reminds us that we are in a constant spiritual battle against the evil one. We think of Ephesians 6 where we're commanded to put on the full armor of God. The devil did not give up when the Amalekites were defeated the first time or the second time or even when they were completely annihilated. Revelation 12 tells us that he hasn't even given up after he was defeated by the Son of God. That means that even with Christ our King on his throne as eternal King, as the guarantee of our final victory, the spiritual warfare will continue until Christ returns on his great day. The battle that began in the desert before the Israelites reached Mount Sinai, and even before that when the serpent attacked the church in the Garden of Eden, the battle continued on in the Promised Land through the times of the kings and, and the exile right up until the birth of Jesus Christ and even to today. Now before he broke the teeth of our enemy to rescue us from his power, our Lord Jesus spoke to his people, to his church, and he taught us the Lord's Prayer. He urged us to continue to pray, to desire the fullness of the kingdom when God will be all in all. Called to put on the full armor of God, we eagerly continue to pray, Your kingdom come. And this helps us to stay focused on the battles that really matter. Christian warfare is not to be confused with political activism or the defense of the comforts of our daily life that we have grown accustomed to or even exposing the sins and wickedness of others. But it is warfare that is focused on the preservation of the church, the, the name and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ being known around us, 
from all the attacks of the evil one and the gates of hell against Christ's body, against the proclamation of the gospel. And so armed with truth and righteousness and readiness and peace, faith, salvation and the word of God, we pray every day with this text in our mind that, that our God will help us to stand firm in the promises, to continue to cling to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior until we may experience the fullness of that promised inheritance. Now our text does not guarantee that the good guys will win every war. Nor does the Lord even promise victory to His people in every battle. But He does promise that no one will ever manage to dethrone the eternal King, our Lord Jesus Christ. And just as the Lord ensured that no one could prevent the Savior from being born, and the Lord showed this in our, in our text, so also we can be sure that now that our Lord has finished His work on earth and is on His throne, He will rule as King forever and ever. And this certain knowledge of victory from the Lord gives us strength and confidence when we are called to fight against the devil, the world, and our own sinful desires of the flesh. This knowledge of the Lord as a God of war, as Moses mentioned at the end of our text, was a knowledge that was gained in the time between the day the Israelites left Egypt, at the time the Lord said they're not ready for war, and the day that he commanded them to fight the Philistines in the war. And we think about what, what changed between Exodus 3, or 13, verse 17, and Exodus 17, verse 9. Whereas before, the Israelites were very likely to give in and to choose to return to slavery, whether it was due to their fear of war or their longing for Egypt's food, they had now seen that the Lord was capable of providing everything they need for body and soul so that they might prevail. And we see God's grace in ensuring that His people are equipped to fight in the conviction of the truth and trust in the almighty power of the Lord before He calls us to face those battles. After the defeat of the Egyptians and the water, and the quail, and the manna in the desert, they had learned that they were God's chosen people who were called to serve God together to resist the evil one's attacks. And before, they had been fighting against one another, complaining against Moses. But now they were ready to look outward as the people of God against their enemies and the Lord's enemies. And in the struggle against the evil one, the church may fight under the banner, the Lord Almighty. Our text makes it clear that the people of God are called to action in some battles against the evil one. However, although we have a task in this age-old conflict, that enmity between the serpent and, and the church, 
We have a task as instruments in the hand of God, just like the Israelites were on the battlefield and, and fighting. Only the Lord God Almighty, who sits on His throne in heaven, can give the victory. The theme of our passage is that the Lord must be our strength. And we can only fight in dependence on Him. And that's why the focus of the battle against the Amalekites is actually not on the battlefield, but on the hill where Moses, Aaron, and a man called Hur were standing. Although this is the first time we read of the man named Hur, whom some interpreters believe to be Miriam's husband, later, uh, later passages reveal that Hur was Moses' helper. He was one of the leaders of Israel. And so we have the picture of Moses and two helpers on either side standing on top of the hill. Moses with his staff on his hand and his two helpers helping him keep his arms in the air, one on either side of him. Now after the victory, when Moses built the altar, he said, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. Those verses describe for us what he was doing on the hill. The staff in his hand represented the presence of the Lord among his people, foreshadowing the tabernacle and the ark. And as he reached up to the throne of the Lord for grace and mercy to help him in his time of need, Moses was like a loyal servant standing beside the king who was looking for the king's blessings on his people. It reminds us of Esther in her dealings with King Ahasuerus, pleading for mercy for the Jewish people who were being threatened by Haman the Agakite, except that Moses was interceding for the people before the Lord God Almighty. And whether or not he had been interceding for the people with spoken prayers to the Lord, his uplifted arm with the staff, was a visible manifestation of his dependence on the Lord, who had already shown his power and his grace and his glory many times before through that staff that Moses held in his hand. The Lord would not punish Israel for their sins with a loss to the enemies as long as their appointed mediator was representing them before the Lord, before the throne of God Almighty. Yet it was also clear that Moses was only pointing forward to the real and the true mediator whom God sent down to earth from heaven because Moses was too weak to stay standing. He was too weak to keep his hands raised up in the air without the help of Aaron and her. Moses couldn't even bear up under the weight of gravity. How much less the burden of God's eternal wrath against the sin of the whole human race. Clearly, God's people need Jesus Christ as our mediator. For he is at the same time both man and God. One of us and yet able to bear the burden of God's wrath. Like any leader on earth, 
Moses was only human. He relied on other leaders to sustain him, pointing forward also to the next chapter. But Jesus came alone as the substitute for everyone who would put their trust in him. The figure of Moses connecting the Lord to the people of Israel serve as an announcement of the kind of work Jesus began to do after he had given his life to deliver us from our slavery to sin. Christ is called our mediator because he stands between God Almighty and his people here on earth at war. He is called our mediator because the Lord pours out the blessings we need to sustain us in the battle that we are in through Jesus Christ who prays, who presents our request to the Lord on our behalf. So as we picture Moses on the hill, when we read this again today and again later in our lives, we picture, we see Moses with the staff in, in, of God in his hands. It reminds us of the time the disciples saw our Lord Jesus as he was going up from the earth into heaven with his arms outstretched, not in plea, but in blessing for his people. We can see Jesus Christ every time we pray to the Lord, standing there before the throne of the Lord God Almighty, ensuring that we receive the strength that we need to prevail in our battles against the evil one. With our Lord Jesus' two natures, his exceeding, his steadfast love, his authority and power in, in heaven and on earth, we can be sure that when we turn to him in prayer and we ask in his name, we will receive what we need to prevail. Moses was commanded to write this as a memorial in a book. God wants you to know, to remember. The memorial announced that the memory of God's enemies would be blotted out from under heaven, but that his name would last from generation to generation. It was a great reason for thankfulness. And Moses built an altar to mark the occasion, declaring for all people that the Lord had given him the victory that day. Moses calls the Lord his banner. Although Joshua and his descendants were commanded to fight against the nations who didn't fear God for generations to come, it was clear that it was really the Lord who was at war, protecting his people, protecting the gospel, protecting us in the peace that Jesus Christ obtained for us, announcing his ownership. We cling to him, showing that we truly believe, we depend, we trust in the Lord, our banner. The banner or the flag that's flying over this church, over the church of Jesus Christ, that banner announces that we belong to the Lord. Let us put our hand upon his throne in reverence, in service, in loyalty, and in trust. And see there our Lord Jesus Christ giving us access into his divine majesty. 
Think of the Lord Jesus and his suffering. When he told his disciples that at just a word, he could have myriads and myriads of, of angels to support him. Well, in Christ, we have that access to the Lord's help in our struggle against the evil one. By God's grace today, we may remember, we may commemorate, we may give thanks for much greater victories and promises than the people did in Moses' days. They had the shadows. We know the sun. And if the people of Israel could count on God's help because a sitting old man with two other men propping him up was what was interceding for them with a mere staff, a piece of wood in his hand, how much more can we who have the Son of God who has conquered death and sin on the cross, who ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God, who is continually interceding for his church, how much more certain can we be of the Lord's help in our lives? They had Moses and the staff. We have the Son of God and the door open in heaven itself as we commemorate the work of our Lord Jesus Christ and give thanks to Him each day. We remember the benefits of His death and the signs and the seals of the sacraments. May we be comforted by the love of God that flows into our lives through our mediator, Jesus Christ, as He gives us strength to stand firm in the war. Amen.